Hello, and welcome to the Nishama Project podcast, where we explore spiritual tools for human thriving. I'm Rabbi Ben Newman. Today, I'd like to read some spiritual teachings from one of my teachers, Rabbi Zalman Shakter Shalomi, the founder of Modern Jewish Renewal, one of the pioneers of neo-Hasidism and Jewish spirituality in general for the contemporary age. This first quote is from his book, Jewish with Feeling. Spiritual hunger. We all feel spiritually hungry at different times in our lives. And we feel that hunger in different ways. Sometimes It is an absence that we feel, an ache, a yearning for something beyond what we experience day to day. We need someone to talk to sometimes, an other with whom we can share our innermost thoughts. Not a spouse or a lover, a parent or a friend, not even a therapist, but someone who is closer to us than all of these someone to share those existential questions that besiege us in dark moments. Does my life have any real meaning? Does the way I behave or what happens to me really matter? Will the world be safe for my children? Someone to rage at, why me? Why is my life such a mess? Why are my kids or partner or my boss doing this to me? Why can't I make ends meet? Why am I ill? Why must a life be cut short before it's time? Someone to thank for the blessings in our lives, the superabundance of them, or the few that remain to us. If you've had serious surgery, as I have, even something as simple as going to the bathroom without pain can bring on a feeling of, thank goodness my body is working right today. Sometimes it is a presence that beckons or calls to us, a presence that reveals itself to us in glimpses. The other day I was sitting down by a lake where I live as day turned into evening. It was summertime. The fish were jumping. A dog was swimming in the water. The geese and the next generation of goslings were making their way around. On the horizon, the Rocky Mountains washed in pink light rose up to the sky. It was so beautiful to see. I could feel a presence twinkling at me. See, I'm right here. I am all of this. Perhaps you witnessed the birth of a child or saw the new buds on the trees in spring and felt the miracle of new life emerging in the world. Or maybe you stood at the deathbed of a loved one and thought you glimpsed their soul departing this world, leaving only their earthly shell behind. Sometimes it's a serendipity we experience, a crumb that life drops in our laps, a question answered just like that, a request granted out of the blue in a way that couldn't be just a coincidence, could it? Sometimes it's more extreme than that, a born-again mountaintop experience, a near-death or out-of-body experience, an epileptic aura, a vision of unity, Sometimes it feels like a warning from the universe, 
a stop sign that says to us, you can't continue the way you've been going. You need to change your life before it's too late. If you've ever felt the presence of or yearning for such a dimension to the world, you may have wondered, what is this feeling? What is it that I am experiencing? How can I connect to that more? How can I bring more beauty and connection and clarity into my daily life? And you may have wondered too, isn't such clarity and connection what religion is supposed to be about? Then why do I feel it so rarely in so-called religious settings? These questions are at the heart of the spiritual search of so many in our time, and they are beautiful questions. For such wondrous or painful experiences are the very stuff of religion. They were the seeds from which all religions grew, the nutrients that sustained and renewed them over time. They are still what religion should be about. The problem is that our ancient faiths have become over-verbalized and under-experienced. We talk too much and feel too little. Here's another one called The Soul's Waking. Years ago, when my daughter was young, she once asked me, Abba, Daddy, when you're asleep, you can wake up, right? Right, I answered. So when you're awake, she said, can you wake up even more? That part of us that always seeks to awaken even more, I call soul. Judaism speaks of the soul as a spark of God. I like to think of the soul as a holographic snippet off the old block. Each spark, each snippet contains the all. There's a wonderful Jewish teaching about an angel that teaches us the entire Torah when we are in our mother's womb, and then just before we are born taps us under the nose which gives us that hollow above our lip, and we forget it all. This memory loss, to me, bespeaks that tendency, that pull, that we all have toward a point of origin that we once knew, but now must strive to recall. The image of forgetfulness in the story is crucial. Forgetting something is not the same as never knowing it in the first place. Even those things we seem to have forgotten completely are merely dormant, like a spore that has been planted within us, waiting for the proper conditions to germinate and grow. This soul, this spore, this snippet off the holographic block, this teaching that each of us has learned and forgotten, but that lurks deep in our memories. All these images point to an intricate dance between the God that is us, each individual creation, and the God that is all. In the various dramas of our lives, we often forget the truth of our godliness and think of ourselves only as separate, in the early years of our development to adulthood, and sometimes for long periods afterwards, this feels perfectly okay. Being an individual is fun. It is what we all strive towards as we mature. It feels in some very deep way like the right way to be. But sooner or later, as we get older, perhaps have children, start to sense our own mortality, we begin to feel that pull toward the all. At first, we try to ignore it. We hear, I want, and we go to the fridge. Our soul wants so bad that we feel physical pain, so we reach for a pill. 
we feel edgy and restless, so we plan a vacation, try to get away. Years of distraction and estrangement later, we are still feeling lonely in some profound way and lost. But we are not cut off. In rare and fleeting moments of grace, we feel a shot of love pouring into us, the creations from the Creator. Hasidism teaches, furthermore, that the worldly delights with which we try so hard to assuage our spiritual hunger themselves contain a spark of holiness, for they echo the holy love we once knew before separation. The Baal Shem Tov taught that our attraction to these delights is precisely what makes it possible for us to love God. If these worldly desires had not been etched into our bodies, we would never develop the sensitivity needed for spiritual being. Thus the obstacles to what the Hasidim call devekut, adhering to God, can serve as the very cement that adheres us to God. This frees us to delight in our individuality, the unique stamp of creation that each of us bears and embodies. The spark of delight in being separate to the Baal Shem resides in the intention and goal of the separation, which is to put our individuality at the service of union, of oneness. We whose hunger is unfulfilled feel the glimmerings of that intention, but have not yet found a way to carry it out. So we dance, God the Creator and God the Created. We separate, come close, and separate again. The quest is, in a sense, about how we might more consciously join that dance, and how we as partners might start to lead rather than follow, to develop more sure-footed moves of our own. This is no easy matter. It's all very well to say that our goal as spiritual beings is to put ourselves at the service of union but what does that really mean? How do we go about it? More pointedly, how do we go about it without losing our individuality in the context of our daily lives? This next one is called The Mystical Approach to Religious Life. If we were to make a distinction between the mystical and dogmatic elements in religious practice, the distinction would boil down to how much of the experiential elements is present. Mystical doctrine claims that we can experience the infinite right now, that beneath the surface of the obvious there exists divinity. The dogmatic approach, on the other hand, doubts the possibility of experiencing God on this plane and contents itself with belief in revealed principles, reasoned theology, outward observances, and ritual. Religious dogmatists see little purpose in looking below the surface for hidden meanings and experiences. Religious mystics, on the other hand, see little purpose in simply reciting prayer formulae and not looking beyond them. People seem naturally drawn to one of these two positions, to the exoteric, focusing on outer behavior and ritual practice, or to the esoteric, search for the inner experience. In the Jewish tradition, the mystical body of knowledge is called Kabbalah, which generally means the received. 
Kabbalah is often transmitted orally with only the outlines being written down. This is in part to protect it from being used without guidance and because the mystical experience doesn't translate very well from direct experience into indirect words. There is a teaching in Kabbalah that tells of the original vessels created by God in the beginning, which God filled to the brim with divine light. The full force of light was too much for these vessels and they shattered, showering shards of vessels and sparks of light everywhere. Eventually, shells formed on the outside of these sparks of light, hiding the sparks within them. This is the basis of the material world we live in today. The Hasidic masters taught that these sparks of divinity reside in everything, animate and inanimate, and that each of us has it in our power to redeem the imprisoned sparks and send them back up to the, their divine source to rejoin divinity. They also teach that this release and reunion of sparks is accomplished by every holy act. What defines such an act is not only the outer prescriptions of behavior in the Jewish tradition, but also what we are doing on the inner plane. When we are offering the outer act of love, obedience, and service, that is only the shell of it. On the inner level, we are sorting out sparks, offering them up, creating a tikkun, a fix or rectification for the original catastrophe of the shattering. That, at least, is the classical formulation. From another point of view, there was never a catastrophe only a loving, intentional, and creative act. The fact that things are not totally symmetrical creates the possibility, the imbalance that allows for this particular reality. The fall from the Garden of Eden, then, was not a fall at all. It was a setup to allow the human being to individuate, to become a self-conscious individual being. Stages on the path. Spiritual progress is often charted in linear stages, though the actual experience of these is usually more dynamic and organically unique to the individual seeker. However, a linear progression is useful for teaching, so I'd like to speak of five such stages. The first is the rung of love, fueled by the neophyte's enthusiasm. Optimistic, grateful for new lights and growing joy, it overlooks the difficulties ahead. But many are caught in a loop here, moving from one path to another on the same level, all in order to continue enjoying the thrill of newness and the sweet emotion of discovery. Fortunately, the newness wears off, and the thrill eventually evaporates. It necessarily ends in order to propel movement to the next stage. The rung of power is the level of mastery of the medium, the technique. At this stage of rigorous discipline, one develops a new center of gravity, a place of personal power, inspired by an initial understanding of the inner light through focused mastery of the medium. At this stage, one has to be careful not to get caught up in a practice of ascetic athletics and over-strictness which is often accompanied by intolerance of weaker others. 
Having found the limitations of the rung of power, we ascend to the rung of beauty, a level in which symbols are highly charged and new depths of meaning suggest themselves in emotional creativity. Here at the gate of beauty, the various dramas between the soul and her source are revealed. Here, God is the parent, the friend, or the beloved in the life drama. One eventually moves on to the rung of community, where the harmonious collectivity of all souls is the highest concern. Having enjoyed the levels of creativity in the previous stages, we question whether this creativity is in itself of any benefit to others. Does the earth get healed by it? Do exiles get released through it? Is the pool of knowledge enhanced by it? Are those people who need to work and dream and share together working, dreaming, and sharing together? But this level of integration cannot occur until one has had the experience of the various games and names and roles of self and God within the rung of beauty. By God's grace, we are then called to the rung of union. Union is an achievement that is beyond our efforts and is of a reality that is beyond our usual considerations already present. That is to say, where the very identity of the soul with the beloved, of God with the person, is already a fact. The realization of union is what occurs on this rung, not the unchanging existence of union. Periodic reflection on this truth is spiritual medicine for depression at any stage of practice. In our daily meditations, we pray to the divine who fills the world and fills our hearts and moves us from rung to rung until we arrive at where we have always been. And then we take another step so that the soul can come to encompass the vastness of the knowable as well as the unknowable. That's it for this week's episode of the Neshama Project podcast. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, this has been Rabbi Ben Newman. Take care.